Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join today. She's an entrepreneur, founder of Kindly Cut the Crap and meditation coach. It's Wendy Nash. How are you doing today, Wendy? I'm really good. Thank you. And I always just really like to start my um, programs um, with an Aboriginal custom, which is to acknowledge where I'm calling from. This is the sort of idea is that, well, there's a few things behind that. One is that this is actually Aboriginal land and it was stolen. So I always like to recognise that basically I'm living on stolen goods. I'm the recipient of stolen goods and I can't give it back. It's a very awkward situation nonetheless. So that's that's to recognise the sort of crimes against humanity of previous generations. And it's also to say that, um, you can't really tell, you can't really um, go forward until you've acknowledged where you've come from and where you are. So I'm calling from Gabby Gabby country, which is in northeast Queensland, uh, northeast Brisbane in Queensland in Australia. And uh, the people here have cared for the land for about 70,000 years. And we have successfully trashed it in just a couple of hundred. So, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of learning and crafting and improvement and change whittling kind of ideas and observation and study um, of animals, plants, the land, the climate, the stars, and how everything comes together. So we haven't paid attention to that, and that's kind of a problem. So I just like to always start with that. And to say thank you for uh, letting me on your show. It's very lovely that you've invited me on, and uh, I'm looking forward to the chat. Let's see where we go. <laughs> We're excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? <clears throat> yeah, the, I, well, I come from Sydney. I grew up on the outskirts of Sydney. Um, I actually grew up next to a rubbish tip. So one of the things that we used to do <laughs> is go to the tip where you could in those days, you know, they were so like lackadaisical. Um, and um, we used to go to the tip and we'd scavenge and we'd bring home all these treasures. Uh, so that was kind of fun. And then on the other side was like this really fresh bushland, which had been, you know, it was like nothing except so on one side it was a tip and then on the other side it was bushland. And then I did lots of gymnastics as well. So that was that was where I came from and what I did. You mentioned treasure, finding treasures. Did you like that kind of adventure feel where you could, you never know what you're going to find, you're never going to know what you're going to see, but it was always fun experience to go out there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely... I don't know that I would call it adventure. It was just play. You know, kids play. Is it called adventure when it's play? You know, you just go and, oh, look at this and what about that? I mean, it's not, it's not big. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just kids being kids. And uh, I know we also used to cycle nearby. But, yeah, we found, I found toys and I understood a lot about rubbish. (laughs) And actually, (laughs) I think part of my interest in the sort of uh, some of the pollution issues that we have is because it was really strange. On the one hand, you know, on my left was this tip and on the right was the thing, oh, was this thing. And then um, was this bushland. And then we actually had a very small house 
when we bought it, it was a small little fibro cottage. And then my parents, they came from um, quite well-to-do backgrounds. So it's like a lot of different things here. And um, and so they built a big house on a five-acre block and it was um, three-quarters of an acre cleared land and there was a tennis court. That sounds more flash than it was and a swimming pool <laughs> also sounds more. I was like, I don't know if you have the company Clark Rubber, but but basically it's an above ground like, yeah, okay, technically it's a pool. Yeah. It is a pool, but it's not this flash in ground kind yeah. of pool. My father was quite creative. I got that from him and he was a make-do kind of character. So I was really curious about this idea about how you have pristine well, look at that. That's where that's its kind of so-called natural state. Of course, now I I know that that land had actually been farmed for a, you know millennia, but um, but in very traditional you know ways. Um, and then you clear the land, and you build something, and then you throw away what you don't want. Like it was there, it was right there, and then behind behind that crest. On one side was the tele, te, uh, telephone exchange, and on the other side uh, came the electricity exchange. So I and then behind that was the main road. So I kind of had the whole of society within fifty meters of where I lived. Wow. The whole kind of cycle of kind of the, the perils of our society in many ways. And uh, you know, my brothers aren't haven't really thought so much about that. So it must be something about my character that says this is a very curious situation where and it, and it made me realize that humans are by nature quite destructive creatures because you can kill an animal to eat it or not that's fine but even if you grow vegetables you kill the worms that and the aphids that destroy your vegetables and then even if you even if you don't kill the animals directly indirectly you starve them or you remove their home by clearing the land so it's very interesting to kind of look at this the experience of being a human being that even to clothe and house yourself and feed yourself has a destructive quality about it and to fully own that so I got I must have had these huge insights when I was about (laughs) 10 (laughs) so anyway you asked me where I came from and what was going on for me that was it (laughs) you talked about gymnastics where did you kind of first fall in love with gymnastics? Did you see it at school? Did you see it in the paper, anything like that? And how did you enjoy it? So I did ballet first, but I have a very active body and my character likes to run around and do things. And so the ballet was so boring. (laughs) And my parents just said, let's try gymnastics. So they just enrolled me and I did it for several years and then I can't remember what happened, but uh, they wanted to make me, I was quite good at it, but I wasn't competitive, but they wanted to make me competitive. They saw that I had potential. So they increased the number of hours that I was doing a week and then I came to really hate it. So then I went and did jiu-jitsu, I think it was, but I hated that too. And then my father died. So then it was all like, yeah, completely crashing, but let's just keep crashing and burning. So yeah, no, that, that it just didn't work for that, but I'm still pretty active. I still try and do some exercise most days of some kind. I remember my, I think my mom put me in a gymnastics camp and I, I'm like, 
I forget what age I was, but those rings, it's, I, the mm-hmm. women's don't have the rings event, but the men's do. So you have this tiny, all these kids, and then they're going so high, they have to climb these mats just to get to the rings. And I thought, this is so cool. Like I could do that. And then the trampoline and all that. I'm thinking this is so much fun. Then after that camp, I never even touched gymnastics ever again. And then I bought, I got a trampoline. So I'm like, okay, I guess I still enjoy what I do. Did you have a certain event that you liked or a certain like kind of technique or style in gymnastics? I pro yeah, I probably like the floor. You know, okay. I love doing all the backflips and things like that. Cartwheels and backflips and all that sort of stuff. So, and, and later on I did do trampolining and I actually, I think I won the, the comp won my, you know, whatever it was, I was 18 or something. <laughs> and there were only two people. So I was either going to come first or I was going to come <laughs> second. <laughs> so they gave me nonetheless a little award, but yeah, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was good and, and all the rest, but it's not my, yeah, I'm not, I don't like the competitive uh, spirit of it. That's, you know, most times you do sport, it's not to play, it's not to learn, it's to, it's very outcomes focused. Where are you ranked? Are you good? Yep. Are you bad? And really that just takes all the fun out of it. So the minute you put a number on it, you're crashing the quality of it. So, yeah. You mentioned that the more hours you put into it, you hated gymnastics. Then you took jujitsu and then it was kind of the same thing where you just didn't enjoy. Did it kind of hurt your kind of motivation to continue doing something after two ideas or two things that you just didn't like anymore? Oh, look, by that stage, you know, like... Now we start to get into more of the story of what was complicated. It was already pretty complicated by that. But uh, basically my brother collected me from from the class um, and drove me home and he was all weird. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, mum will tell you when we get home. So got home, walked in the door and my father had left and uh, he was actually terminally ill. Uh, so he didn't want to um, see us uh, see us watch him die as a, as care and care for him. So six weeks later, he he died in England, but we didn't know where he was during that time. And I would say for your listeners, if anybody has an idea of doing that, don't do that. It's really really bad. It's not like you just evaporate. I understand why he did it. I mean, basically, what happened is that. Uh, a year after I was born, my sister was born with a terminal illness, and it took eighteen months for her to die. And it was a huge roller coaster. It was completely devastating. And within three weeks, my mother's father died. Sometime in the next year, my father's father died. A year after that, my mother's mother got sick. Two years after that, she died. Four years after mm. that, my father got sick. So the idea of like he had seen enough destruction in a family about caring to say, I just cannot put them through that. So I understand the thinking, um, but, yeah, don't think it's going to be. It's too confusing. I mean, it took me a lot of therapy to figure that one out 
you know, I'm I'm 55 and basically I didn't figure it out until maybe two years ago. That happened when I was 13. And it, it caused a lot of breaches of trust and betrayal and anger and hurt and confusion. So I absolutely, and, and I want to say to people who feel suicidal that just because you feel unloved doesn't mean to say you are unloved. There is a difference between how we feel about our ideas of our place in the world and the reality. So just um, if you're suicidal, get help because people love you and they want you to be around. So I just, I want to, since I was on that topic, I thought I'd just put it in there. Did this bring your mom and your brother closer to where you guys had to be each other's support system through these times? So I have two brothers and one was actually in America, as it turns out, having a really bad time. Um, And it just confirmed to him that our family was not a great place for him. Um, And my mother was pretty horrible uh, to my eldest brother, the one I referred to who collected me from from wherever it was. Um, And in fact, within a couple of months, he had moved out of home during his final year of schooling because she was so unbearable. So, and at some level it kind of put me, yeah, it was definitely it didn't do that. Um, It sort of did bring us together at some level, but unless you're prepared to talk about the pain that we cause each other and look at the way that we speak to each other, you know, like I think in families we can think we can just say something really shitty and that it's okay because they're family. But really, like, if this is somebody who is dear to you, why would you say something horrible and then not try and understand what was the cause of that, not seek reparation? Can't just gloss over the top. You've got to kind of own your own stuff. So, yeah, no, to answer your question, that's not what happened. Um, And I sort of thought it was sort of a bit like, you know, ABBA when, you know, They're very close. One lives in Monaco, one lives in Stockholm, one lives in New York and one lives in London. You know, (laughs) that's what it was when Abba split up. And it was a bit like that in my family. Yeah, we're very close. But one lives here, one lives there, one lives here, one lives there. Like we have no, you know, so we can be deluded in our families. You know, we can form an identity in the family about how close we are. But the truth is that's not. You know, look for the evidence of whether that is actually true, you know. So, yeah. I think you can even almost talk to a lot of people where you kind of mentioned where when you're talking to family, you might say things that are hurtful and then you may not know why that person might have said that. And I know in my family, there's probably been things that we've said to each other, but when we understand why we said it and understand what was going through our minds, that has brought us even closer to situations because maybe we need a time to process. Maybe we just needed that explanation. Cause I even have family members where things happened 10 years ago, but after finally sitting down and talking to each other about what was going on, we were able to burn the bridge and actually resolve it. And I think that has helped because a lot of times things, you just don't know what's going on. And Definitely. I was younger at that time. I'm a lot older now and I can process things a lot better. So definitely those, the words that people say to, especially family members, because you have that family and 
you don't want something to happen. And then the last thing you said to them was something that was terrible. And I want to just say with regards to that, yeah, so I've I've looked a lot at communication skills because I come from this family and I I was basically just copying my family system. The way that my mm-hmm. mother spoke to me is what came out of my mouth, you know, and it weren't pretty. So I had to relearn everything, you know, and this is my rise to the challenge. Yep. And, um, and it actually takes what I learned too late in the game is that both parties have to be willing to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody has an identity of being the capable one who's the good communicator, you're never going to be able to quest. There's too much identity there to question their, that position. It's a very held on fragile identity. So, and people think if they, they talk a lot, they're good communicators, but all that means is that they talk a lot and perhaps they silence people too often. So I would say that actually I had a client this week, we were talking and she's like, oh, how do I get my voice across when somebody said something really, you know, I, I want to say something, but because I'm really upset with what they did, but I don't know how to do that. So um, I think it's really good to open with becoming curious about what was their experience first. So the first question to ask is and I, I learned this just recently and I think oh wish I'd been taught I'd learned this when I was young. The first thing is when somebody says something, you know, um, you've raised that topic, you're a bit cooled down now, it's not right in the head of it. Um, you come you can come back to them and you just go, tell me more about what was happening for you in that moment. Or if you're in a work situation and you're with a colleague and it's getting, you know, you've got a project or something like that, they've got an issue, you go, tell me more about what's what's the problem here that you're trying to solve and work out what, what is going on for you. So start with tell me more about. You can use that. And it, it does a few things. It gives the person an opportunity to really develop their ideas. And it also gives you a pause to start to collect your thoughts. And it, it gives you an opportunity to engage with what is going on in their reality. You might want to kind of lash out and speak, but don't don't do that yet. And the follow-up question on that is, it's not really a question, but it's sort of a seeking of a confirmation. So it's something, so you go, what I hear you care about is, and it's usually the opposite of what they are complaining about. Oh, you're so sharp. You know, you, you say horrible things. Ah, so what you what I hear you care about is really smooth running relationships. Um, harmony in, you know, having an sort of low conflict communication, easy, easy ways of speaking with each other. So that's, so it's, there's that, um, but it's um, what I hear you um, care about. That's the phrase. And the next one is just really just, sometimes it's useful to go into emotions, but I really think sometimes that can be a bit intrusive even with somebody, a, a partner, unless you're very skilled at it. So, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, I'm wondering if it might be a bit of disappointment or something like that. Yeah, I was, you know, or, you know, I, you know maybe you're, are you a bit frustrated or something. You don't have to be too therapy kind of, you know, is it, 
is it anger you're feeling right now? You know, I'm going to deck you actually. You know, <laughs> I have a strong desire to thump you. So, yes, that would be anger. So, don't, I think it's good to avoid. And that was a mistake that I made for a long, long time. And the last bit is um, to say, um, and what are your thoughts about the conversation or how do you feel about the conversation? And that just ties up any loose ends. And it sounds like actually the conversation is all about them. But when you do it together, so uh, if I, if we were to model this, for instance, and I, you know, you told me your thing and, and I was upset with you, I would go, ah, so what I understood from it is that you were saying X, Y, Z, but now I see that I'm, I was wrong or I was, you know, nonetheless, it's, it was pretty sharp and um, I was quite hurt by that by the tone of voice um, and it's just you there's so much space there and there's so much goodwill there's space to have a, a bit of just seeking clarity so uh, and that's pretty much it so it's just kind of three things tell me more about what I hear you care about and what's your sense of the conversation or what the issue is or how do you feel about that and and that's it. It's not complicated. As you're going through school, university, college, education, did you kind of have an idea of what you wanted to do as a career? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, you know, I had such a complicated schooling. You know, my parents were, you know, what? I'm born in the 60s. It's a different era. Parenting was very, very different. It's what they call benign neglect. It's the era of benign neglect. Um, so I was four years and nine months, and I was on a bus from one suburb to another, unaccompanied by an adult. I couldn't read the destination at the front. So I got out of school one day, and I got on the first bus that came along because that's what we did, and I ended up in a completely wrong suburb. And then my parents went, sent me off to this hippie school, and then... Uh, they realized that I wasn't learning or they thought I wasn't learning. And so then um, they put me in the local primary school and they just said, oh, you'll figure it out. You know, you're really clever. You'll figure it out. And I dropped down, but I'd missed the super basics by that stage. And then I was in this horrible bullied environment for five mm. years. And then uh, my father died. And then I went and lived in Sweden. And I, I had something like eight unexpected changes in my schooling. Wow. So. I was just trying to get through. I did not have an idea about what was my long-term goal. I was just trying to, I mean, I dropped out and I did shop work for five years. And then I did a secretarial course and, um, and that I wanted to go and I just wanted to earn an income while figuring out who I was. So that was really, I guess, my ambition was just trying, like I just had all this crap that I needed to sort out. Um, and I just was just sorting it out. And then, yeah, so I did secretarial for, for 30 years and I completely hated it. So if anybody is thinking the secretary is a bit crap, chances are they didn't choose that. They're just doing it because that's kind of what they've got to do. They don't see a lot of alternatives. So be kind to <laughs> secretaries. Um, so I it really came... This this thing is really my current work, which is uh, teaching people how to set up a meditation routine 
and and my the 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 people I like to work with are entrepreneurs. So they're people who are kind of out there wanting to go get really sort things out, and they want meditation to really develop who they are, their character, be good employers, be good people in relationship. Uh, so, you know, like I've got a psychotherapy tra- um, diploma, I've got a psychology degree, I've got 20 years of meditation practice, I'm, quali- I'm almost finished qualified my first uh, meditation teacher training. So, and I've had a lot of personal therapy. And so, you know, that's, that's my engagement. And because I, so what I saw as a secretary is that I was like the executive assistant to a lot of CEOs and, and business leaders. And they're just horrible people, a lot of them. And they completely think that they can be horrible and no one is going to notice. And you go, yeah, you've got staff problems, staff attrition. What, what do you think that's to do with? Oh, well, they're just lazy or whatever. And or they're out to get the most or whatever. And it's and so it was observing all these leaders that inspired me to go, wow, I've got these sort of skills in understanding people and working with people and helping people feel more supported so meditation is really such a good support for understanding yourself and how you work with people um and so I, that's why I choose meditation it's really to get people into a place where they uh have sufficient tools to do it on their own it does take about 18 months to set up a solid routine and to understand, get past all the first lot of mind games. It takes about 18 months. But once that 18 months has passed, people are good to go and I just wish them well. And um, so there you go. So that's how I ended up there. <laughs> Sorry about the long conversation. All good. You talked about the secretary job wasn't fun for you, but sometimes <laughs> we always have that hard challenge or something we don't like, but it teaches us something about ourselves that we didn't know we had. Did you ever have that moment where during those 20, 30 years when you're doing it, that it taught you or it made you be aware of something that you didn't know you had in you? I would say that happened afterwards. Okay. So I'm phenomenally well organized. And I uh, I have very, I mean, I'm obviously a really good typist. Um, I, um, I'm really good at setting up procedures, making it very streamlined. I mean, if people have secretaries who are listening and they're kind of wondering who to promote the most in the company, it's your admins because they are well-organized, good people, people, um, good at understanding power structures, Mm -hmm. good at, uh, negotiating, getting things done on behalf of the company, Working collaboratively, you're like it's actually a real possibility to to and and they're open to learning. You know they've always got new things they have to learn all the time, and they're so used to being not thanked and not praised and not appreciated. They don't really expect anything. Just you just get you just do the job, and you know people like you or they don't, whatever. But um, you you need very little appreciation. And make sure you pay them properly. That's the other thing. People always say, my secretary is so important to me. And I'm like, yeah, so how come you don't pay them the same as your managers then? You know, like if you think that they're that important and they're making these huge decisions, why you don't pay them equally? And that's a gender issue. But anyway, 
save that rent for another time. You talked about the different items that you learned about yourself after your secretary job, like being organized, being precise, which are all great qualities when it comes to being an entrepreneur, because you're that solo person putting together the business plan, the whole idea, the concept. What was the most favorite part of getting together founder of Kindly Cut the Crap? I love that title because it's (laughs) catchy and a lot of people can probably relate to that. But what was a fun part about that journey, getting that together? I'll tell you about the company name since you raised it. People, it's really, it's a really interesting thing. You know, like I've obviously sought business advice and things like that. And the business advisors just go, that's a really bad name. You should get rid of that name. And all the people I meet who are like just around, they just go, that is a fantastic name. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. So um, just hold on a second. So I started off with uh, cut the crap because, A, I'm a very direct person, and, B, um, what I'm looking to do is to really cut the wheat from the chaff or Mm -hmm. separate the wheat from the chaff. I'm really looking, what do you actually need to engage with? What is really important here? What is what is the essential part and just focus on that. Um, But then obviously it's quite harsh and quite brutal. And I'm very interested in double meaning kind of terms. So there's two, you know, cut the crack. And And then uh, kindly, you know, I think really at the end of the day, what is so the most important, doesn't matter whatever you do, it's to be kind. And Mm. so it alliterates nicely. So, um, and I'm, like alliteration and word games and I grew up with cryptic crosswords and stuff so I love all that sort of stuff and I speak a couple of other languages or I used to anyway so I love to play around with the words and the the sounds and all that sort of stuff so that that's how I came about the company name and then you asked me a question and I don't remember what it was. So you mentioned at the end of your secretary job, you figured out how to be well-organized and precise. What was your favorite part on setting that business together, putting together in that process? Sometimes like, for example, when I'm creating the show and I'm coming up with the idea and the concept logos, to me, the creativity side was the fun part because it's putting my vision onto paper and making it come to life. What was that for you? What was the fun part about putting it together? It happened organically pretty much. Um, A really good friend of mine just said, I need some help with burnout. I'm I'm a startup founder and I am having a really crap time. It's like fifth, sixth year or something like that. He's pissed off with everybody. He's uh, resentful and not having a fun time at all. And so I gave him some techniques and we, you know, we whittled it and, and changed it. So I think for me, it's the thing about being a secretary is that um, you're never thanked, you're never appreciated. No one, you know, you might get a cursory, oh, thanks for doing that. But that's as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't get appreciation for, a skill, you know, the skills that a person might offer. So there you are. Um So for me, it was just, I felt like I was doing a job where I had dignity. I was treated with dignity. 
um, that I, that people listened to what I had to offer. Um, so that was a huge thing, actually. That's that's a huge thing. That's been huge. That's been the best part for me, just having a job where people, you know, it used to be where I would say, you know, what do you do? And I'd, I'd say, oh, I'm a secretary. And they go, oh, that's nice. Oh, you know, they're the most important people in the company, whatever. And, um, and then... And then they'd talk about themselves or whatever. And I just, you know, but now I go, I'm a meditation coach and, and I do this and, oh, you know, and what do you learn and what, tell me more about that. And I feel like I've got a, a job title that is um, appreciated in society, actually. It has value. In, so I thought about the word of dignity. What does that word mean? Um, and it means to have value in the eyes of society. That was my interpretation. So, you know, I sort of see that um, people who aren't white aren't treated with such dignity. People who aren't straight aren't treated with such dignity. People who aren't men aren't treated with such dignity. So, and people who are poor aren't treated with such dignity. And so um, there there is something really lovely about having just good old fashioned dignity and um, and care. Yeah. So that there you are. That's the thing for me. When you talk, when people are learning more about your business and they hear about meditation, sometimes it's a topic where people don't really understand it fully. How do you help someone, even if it's a listener listening to this, to really understand what's the benefits of meditation? And it's simple as possible because every person's different in what they're going to get out of meditation. So meditation is really just the witnessing um, of the, the mind. That's all meditation is. It's just awareness. So if you're angry, well, wow, I'm really angry actually. And that observing that, noticing it and not getting caught up in it mm-hmm. is the meditation. So it doesn't, you don't have to sit for 20 minutes a day. You don't have to count your breath. You can, there's a great meditation. My favorite meditation practice. Can I give you some ones that are like no time out of your day and maybe even give you something beneficial at the end of the week, like give you a bit more time at the end of the week You up for that? My favourite one is one called, and this is also relates to the dignity question, uh, it's called Leave No Trace, and I think it's probably a Zen practice. And basically, uh, you just clean as you go. So when you're brushing your teeth at the end of the day or the morning, morning and evening, you know, you look down at the basin and it's kind of like got the remnants of the toothpaste. Yeah. So you just get a cloth and you wipe it down and there's no trace of you having done that. So you leave no trace. And likewise, so then, um, you know, you have a shower and then afterwards you just wipe down the whole shower and as if you've never been there and also stops the buildup of mould. And by the time you've finished wiping it down, you don't wet your towel so much. So then you don't need to churn through all your towels and things like that so quickly. But then, uh, you, you know, you can do that with dishes. So you get your cup. You, instead of sort of putting it to the side, you just get the thing, you wash it instantly, you get the tea towel and you put it in the cupboard. And so it's like you've never been there. And uh, you do that likewise in the bed. You just always make the bed. Um, And 
Yeah, so lots of small things. So you just, it's like you you leave no trace of what you've done. You just complete the process. So if you bring in the washing from outside, you fold it, you put it away. So I love that practice. And um, what it does is, A, you don't get lumped with that, oh, my God, I've got two hours and I need to clean this stupid house. So <laughs> you don't get that on the weekend. And you also don't get that domestic burden where half the population are left with doing too much stuff. Um, And you also get to live in this really lovely, clean house all the time. It's really lovely to live in a clean house. You know, it's beautiful. So that's, you know, part of the dignity. You know, it's nice to live in a dignified house. Another meditation practice that is easy is when you walk along. There are a couple of meditation practices you can do. One is to just observe the sounds. So, you know, what are you listening to? What do you hear? Not to judge it good or bad. Or if you do judge it good or bad, notice that you are judging it good or bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you who wants to hear a motor mower at 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, that's <laughs> like <laughs> really irritating. Instead, get a rotary mower. You know, one of those small old-fashioned ones. They're really cheap and they're really good and they're eco-friendly. So, because yeah, gardening implement gardening motors are actually one of the biggest polluters on the planet. So, I'm not going to go into my right there. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say also about that leave no trace uh, practice is that it models good practice for children, and it also uh, the big thing in the this is why it's meditation is because if you kind of go. Oh, I don't want to do that. That's the moment where you go, oh, really? This is going to be like two seconds and the cup is in the cupboard. So, oh, really? Is that what my mind does? It's really contrary. I don't want to do this. Why should I be doing this? You can hear all that crap going on. And that's the thing is really lovely to engage with because it's like, wow, I'm really pissed off. And when we're pissed off, instead of trying to calm it down, there's a couple of things. One is to say, I feel angry. Yes, it's true. I feel angry. And that allows the body to own that emotion, the body and mind to own the emotion. And if you are angry, use it really effectively and then do a deep clean of the house because leave no trace does a surface one, but a deep clean of the house, clear out the garage, you know, whatever it is, go for a run, whatever it is. Use that energy in a really positive way. But that's, that's the way to work with it. So that's two. So when you're listening to noises, um, another one is when you're walking along, to notice, and this is easier in the house, just to notice what your feet feel like on the floor. And just choose one room, so it might be the hallway, because you kind of change from that. You don't do anything else except walk in that room. So in the corridor, then you just notice that, ah, oh, what does the texture of the floor feel like? What is the, is it? cool is it warm something like that and and then you notice oh wow i'm back to where i am this is where i live so there you go it's funny you mentioned the leave your trace i already do that and i don't even realize i do it like i will see something and i'm like oh i gotta i just did it um after i cooked dinner i'm like cleaning something like mopping the floor because i saw something or i'm cleaning like the counter even though i should be doing that anyway but you just it's kind of like that habit where you just start doing it and then you're like oh well i guess i don't have to do it for a couple days or the next time it doesn't because I used to hate where uh, Sunday is a cleaning day and then you take your whole day and that's what you're doing. So 
I exactly agree with that, where you break it up and you just sometimes don't even realize you're doing it and it gets done faster. Yeah. And I just want to just say that. So you said there in that moment, even though I shouldn't have been doing it. So that is so observing that I shouldn't have been doing that. That is a point of inquiry. And that's what meditation is. So what is this should time, should or should or shouldn't, what does that mean? And that's worth unpacking and that's what I do in my work. So it's just, so since we're about meditation, what is meditation? That's what meditation is. Looking at your journey, what is something fun or like a personal goal or challenge you have for yourself upcoming or something that you are excited about pursuing? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. I tend to be a very serious insect and I'm always, you know, <laughs> you know, trying to, like I was going to say, oh, well, I've got my memorization. I'm trying to learn this memorization techniques and things like that. Just because, you know, I just liked, I, I read this book. It was really fantastic. It's called Memory Craft and she's got a whole, it's beautifully written and then it's got lots of things. So that's that. Uh, and uh, so I've just moved town and interstate and I am connecting with the local community so that's something that I'm trying to really develop my relationship so that's a goal to have build a really good social network and business network so I'm doing that um and I've decided it's time to get back into the gym we've a lot of places have closed down because of the pandemic uh so I'm kind of getting back into fitness which is really nice and I guess what else? Um, yeah, so just a bit trying to be a bit more lighthearted, I think. And I was thinking about something you said actually a while ago that I wanted to 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 talk about, which is um, I can't remember what you were referring to, but what was a really big thing for me that I learned that was really different that actually completely changed my perspective on life and helped me be kind of really transition in a really big way. My, my well-being, my sense of well-being and my sense of um, pain, I guess, about the world. And, uh, and I'll do this with you. Okay. So take a topic that you use like your big thing that you really love. What is that topic? Ooh. That is your like thing you know the most about in the whole big, big wide world. I, I'm going to say because my my mom was going to say that I would know this. So the show Big Brother, in a way. Okay, okay, so that All would right. be the topic. Okay, and so if you were to say how much you know about Big Brother, did you say Big Brother? Yeah, you said Big Brother. Yeah, yeah. How much you know about Big Brother? How much would you say on a sort of like percentage wise? 90%. Okay. All right. So, so you know all about the actors, all the, they're not actors, they're people, but you yeah. know the participants, you know about all the direction and the production, you know all about the set, you know all about that all over the world. So, you know what it's like in Australia and, and other countries and what, it, what the Canadian versions are like and the New Zealand. And you know about the way that it's edited to be crafted and, and elicit particular responses. And you know all the stuff that is going on that's not, that you're not familiar with. 
Yeah. Would you still say it's as high as all that? Yes. Cause I think it's basically because I've watched a lot of seasons and I've kind of like analyzed it in a way where it's fun for me. Like I I'm even watching a past season that I just watched when it happened live during the time, but it's just, it's something that it's been passionate for me. So I always look at it and I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize it this last time. I okay. Right. I'm learning always okay. something new each time. Right. That's where I wanted to go. All right. So Given that each time you wanted to go, you're learning something new and you don't remember all the episodes all the time, would you still say that you're at 90%? Probably not, but there's too many. What would you? you, Okay, right. So, okay, now let's bring that number to an actual number that you do think you do know. I would say 75%. 75%. Okay. About all the participants, past, present, the pipeline, is it still on? In America, it is, yes. Okay. In Australia, um, it is. Is it? Okay, there you go. So I don't have a television, so I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so I asked a software designer, and he's quite, he has a, a strong, a very strong sense of his knowledge. And I said, all over the big wide world, how much do you know about software design? And he said, Ooh, really? 2%. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. So that you could say, and I, well, I actually didn't ask you very well. So that you could say 100% irrefutably that you were 100% sure about that no one could argue otherwise. So I, I didn't ask you actually very well. So if I, if you were to say you knew 100% unequivocal that was absolutely irrefutable about Big Brother, how much percentage-wise would you say that would be? Are we talking about like the down specific details of what's going on? Yeah, everything. Everything about Big Brother all over the world. Now tell me that number. I think it would be like 50% now. I feel like the more detailed I'm getting in it, if it's more like the generic gist of what's going on and like what happens, like... I mean, I could say about a season in full detail that I just watched, but if it's like some that I haven't seen in a while, I might forget some of those certain details. Right. So then, so here we go. How much do you really know? You know, you don't know any of those people, where they come from, what their backstory is. You've been, you've been given a particular image of them. Um, but you don't know what their lives are like afterwards. Really, you get the image of it. So if you actually whittle it down, chances are it's probably about no more than 5%. When you oh, get yeah. right, right down to it, 5% on a good day. Okay. So you, I reckon you'd probably be about 80% sure for another 20%. So you'd be up to 20, 20%. So we'll, we're here we're at 25%. You have a good hunch or absolutely 100% sure about which means that 75% of the time, chances are you're wrong. There's mm-hmm. a really good chance you're wrong. Because you said, oh, I keep learning about that. You were wrong about it. Yep. So, right, so, or it's a mystery or whatever. You're curious and you're open. So once you let go of the idea that you have to be right and you are right, you must be right because this is absolutely true, actually, you start to relinquish the idea that, well, of course I have to be right. 
because good chance that I'm not right, more chance that I'm wrong than I am right. Yeah. And if we, if we let go of the idea that we have to be right and that we would rather be happy, then life starts to become very much easier. So anyway, that's what I, it took a while to kind of drill it down. Yeah. <laughs> I always look at it. I, like when I was younger, I used to have that mentality where, oh, I'm right. And then I feel that as I've gotten older, it's always, what's a learning opportunity in this situation if I don't know I'm right. And so that's how I, I think it's just a change of mindset. I think when you're a kid, you're like, you're not thinking it analyzing it as much as when you're an adult in a way that's how I feel but some people can relate and some people they haven't had that experience before yeah and some people don't can't bear to be wrong yeah I can't imagine Putin is going to sit there going oh I'm a bit wrong about Ukraine actually like you know he's not going to do that The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Be open to being wrong. Chances are you probably are anyway. Um, be, Be a better listener. Take on board what people say. If they say you're a crappy communicator, gee, that was a bit harsh. Figure out how you can do it different and um, you can ask them what should I do different or you can um, just go and get counselling or, you know, if it's a bit systemic, some systemic pains that are coming up and you're getting the same patterns but you don't really know what's going on. So therapy is a really good thing or whatever. And just be kind, I think, rising to the challenge. And just, yeah, you don't need to give yourself such grief all the time. I mean, you don't expect that level of perfection in somebody else. So why would you expect it in yourself? Yeah, no, I can agree with that. So it's just, and small changes, lots of small changes. And, and, um, yeah, it's a... It's a long, slow process. As I said, just to get a meditation in practice, a meditation practice up and running takes 18 months. It's slow. We're not, we're not used to that. We don't like to be slow, but we're slow. Yeah. Well, Wendy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Oh, look, it's been a lovely chat. Thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. Tune in next time Hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.